Hello there. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. Let's begin. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm your host for this week, Carolyn West. This week, our podcast is brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. We're also produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm really, really excited to be able to introduce you to someone that I met actually through Twitter earlier last year, Camille Waring. Camille is a PhD candidate at the University of Westminster in London, and her research critically analyzes how sex workers use images in an online digital space. This interview was so inspiring for me to conduct, even just editing it now a few weeks later has just reignited this very specific flame within me. Together, Camille and I talk about a lot of different things. We start with her introduction into the photographic world and move on to the weaponization of photography, how the pandemic is shaping the visual world around us, and what it means to share digital images online to a mass public audience. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast just as much as I enjoyed creating it for you. And just to trigger warning before we get started, Camille and I do touch on some themes of sexual assault and violence, so make sure you're in a safe and welcoming space before you dive in deep. If you have any further questions about anything we talked about today, definitely check out the show notes or you can get in touch with us to find out more. All right, let's go. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on today's show, uh, even though it will be later than today. (laughs) I thought we'd start by maybe if you give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are, what you do, what you're focusing on right now. That'd be great. Um, Well, my name's Camille Waring. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate within the School of Arts at the University of Westminster. And I am doing a PhD um, called Hortography. Um, the sex worker's image maker, which is a critical analysis of the way the sex worker uses the photograph in online spaces. It's not a practice-based PhD, but I'm looking at theory, um, you know, the complex intentions, reasons, um, contradictions or conventions of the image. I am very much a photographic theorist. I guess like you and I, we have really similar uh, backgrounds to anthropology in this is that we both were working as photographers prior to kind of like entering this space. Is that right? I had a really interesting start to photography and there's a really great quote in the film, you know, lost in translation with Scarlett Johansson and um, Bill Murray where she talks about every little girl dreams, has a photography phase. And I guess for me my introduction to photography was probably rather bleak and dark but what it has done is shaped my understanding in why we photograph, not so much in how we photograph. I'll explain that. Basically, my father died when I was a baby, when I was very young, and I have no recollection of him. But my mother collected, like, hundreds and hundreds of photographs of him from when he was in the Vietnam War right up until he died. So for me, I learned very early on 
the power inherent in a photograph to collect, not to collect memories, but to anchor stories and to create ideas about um, people that we may or may not know. So photography for me wasn't about you know, running off and buying a little camera and <laughs> taking pretty pictures. It was about trying to get a connection to a man that I could not remember in order to create a sense of my own identity. And then, you know, because I grew up in a single parent family, my poor mother, bless her, was widowed at the age of 32 with four of us under eight. She had, you know, a lot of complex needs going on and I spent a lot of time by myself and I guess photography was my little escapism for a while and I probably from the age of 10 I started buying photography books on how to, you know, the code and I have to clarify that this is like the 80s, <laughs> well before digital photography. So I learned, you know, I was very interested in photography, was buying photography books on how to photograph. And then when I was 12, I managed to get my hands on a, a Minolta X700. And I taught myself the practice of photography. And back then you had to load your film up of 24 shots record what settings were on the camera, write it down, go and get the film developed and then you could come back and see whether it worked or not. So for me, I think photography started out as a form of escapism and as a way to understand someone I didn't know and that kind of got me thinking about, well, what is the purpose of a photograph, what role? does a photograph play in the world? Because, you know, we all end up as a collection of photographs, you know. We, there's a great quote by a Czech philosopher who says that something along the lines of that, we teach people how to photograph, but we don't teach people how to read photographs or why we photograph. So for me, photography was a, an escape, really, an escape from a really dire childhood. And unfortunately, you know, just my photography story kind of gets worse because... You know, I was very interested in photography. It's all I spoke about as a kid. And then when I was 14, I had the unfortunate um, fate of crossing paths with a sadistic um, sexual abuser who went on to, you know, rape me on and off for seven years. And he was a school teacher and he was he was into photography, so he used photography to groom me, basically. <laughs> And some of the, I mean, I don't want to go into too much details, but he raped me up until between the ages of 14 to the ages of 18 and then I was in a really abusive relationship and I use quotation marks with that up until the age of 21. But some of the sexual offences took place in the dark room and within the photography context. So photography became very triggering for me and in 1997 I took him to court and we battled this brutal bleak um you know battle in the in the criminal court and the civil court but because he had tainted photography for me because I was so triggered I just sold all my kit and got rid of it and didn't want to look at it um I'd have thoughts about wanting to be a photographer, but that was wrapped up in so much guilt and not understanding the sexual abuse. Because he was so into photography and he was a photographer, I thought, well, what does that mean if I want to be a photographer? I tried to go back into dark rooms. I'd smell fixer and automatically get a rape 
flashback. So I just left it. He um that you know the interest in photography and photographs that my mother had fostered through images of my father this man just shattered and destroyed because photography, you know, the process, because the photography in the 80s and 90s had such a physicality to it, you had to go into a dark room. It had smells and touches and sensations. All those sensations were then related to rape and I was, ha- I, you know, I was having really incredibly bad flashbacks. So I couldn't go near photography and I stopped it. I stopped it for about 10 years until, until, I think it was 2005 I decided to get back into it. But photography for me was so intertwined with sadistic sexual violence. How, all of these experiences obviously have really impacted your research and the sort of the way that you kind of, I like your interests now. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit more about that sort of, I guess, because there is like, a, I guess, like a power dynamic going on there. The, the reason why I'm talking about him is a couple of weeks ago he popped up onto my Instagram feed, which um, tells me that he's been lurking on my um, social media content. And I got all, you know, suddenly all physically repulsed at the idea of this man consuming my images. And I guess, you know, curiosity got the better of me. And I looked on his timeline and I'd realised that he's posted one photograph from the year 2000, which is an incredibly bleak year for him to be posting a photograph on. I mean, we were battling this out in criminal court. We battled it out in civil court. And I thought, my God, what are you doing, man? But then I scrolled back further and, you know, viewing somebody else's Instagram feed is a visual act of self-harm. We like to be voyeurs. We like to, you know, photography is a spectacle. We like to stir into the lives of others. And then I found out that he posted a photograph from 1990, which is the year, or circa 1990, which is the year that he started grooming me for sexual violence. And I was like, my God, what is that? He is celebrating a period of life that was so dark for me. And if you want proof that a photograph acts as an anchor of memories, just seeing that photograph dragged up all these memories that I haven't thought about for years. So the way, I guess the way he has influenced the way I think about photography, I think, and what my research is about, I think a lot about the weaponization of photography. Um, I don't want to go all Susan Sontag on you, but how has photography been weaponized against certain populations of people, um, especially women? In the context of my research, it's about marginalized women. And what does a photograph mean? And, you know, what is visual criminology? How's the photograph been weaponized like um you know, lens-based violence like revenge porn. If you look at the context of um, sex work, what does revenge porn mean for a sex worker? Because when you share photos, they're not always releasing non... They're releasing non-sexualised images, which is just as vile as releasing pornographic images. So I guess he kind of... I guess he kind of triggered something in me about... And, I mean, this is a long process. This is over 30 years. He got me thinking about why do we spend so much time teaching people how to photograph but we don't spend any time thinking about what the photograph actually means? And that whole sexual violence period of the 1990s coincided with the magical period of photography where you had the boom in digital photography at the birth of mobile technologies and mobile intimacies and the rise of the internet. So I guess my research lies in 
visual cultures in online spaces. Unlike a traditional ethnographic research or an anthropological research, the internet is my field site. So I look at how people interact with photographs, what those photographs mean and the consequences. Because simply because we're post-disconnected, there's no such thing as an offline world anymore. And therefore what power, then what does that mean for a photograph? For instance, you know, is it still a photograph if we don't share it? And are we now only taking photographs for the purpose of being shared? And if so, does that change the, the meaning of the photograph? And if you look at the situation with my abuser who popped up on Instagram, I met him randomly, but social media apps don't work on randomness. They work on connectivity. So obviously these algorithms are going, well, we need to connect these people. They know each other not being aware of the context. So then I've gone and seen his photos and that means something to me, but it means something different to him. So it raises a lot of questions about what role does photography play in any context? Like, for instance, in, you know, wedding photography, what role is the role of, the, you know, the wedding photograph? Because you've got people like Lindsay Smith talking about, you know, the, the wedding photo as an agent of family cohesion that we use to convince ourselves of togetherness. So I guess, you know, your question about how does it shape your research, it just underpins it all because I'm interested in the impacts the photographs have on wider people and otherness, in particular marginalised people, and how class kind of intersects through all that. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, that was super interesting. I have so many threads that I want to go off <laughs> from that. From that, like, I just feel like you just touched on so many great things. I'm like, oh, I want to dive deeper into everything. <laughs> because people go, oh, how did you get into photography? And I want to give them this really nice, sweet story. But it's actually, I spent my whole childhood looking at photos of even photos of my father's car accident because he was a police officer when he was killed on duty. So his funeral was quite public. And then it got me to asking questions: Well, why don't we photograph death? Um, why don't we, you know? And even in terms of my um, sexual abuse at the hands of this man is why don't we photograph rape where, where are the images of rape do you know what I mean so there's so many complex questions that come out of my disastrous mm. connection to photography because I think people dismiss photography because they don't think it's relevant and they don't think it's relevant because so much part of ingrading their life they, they, they just don't think about it like what is social in social media and why do we need to share photographs what's that about do you know why instagram why is it reminiscent of yeah. the instax you know what you know his nostalgia are we reminiscing because i didn't want to see my rapist you know i haven't thought about him for 21 years but instagram algorithms decided we need to be reconnected and then by seeing that photo from him around the 1990s just acted as an anchor and just brought all that back that is the power inherent in photography your main sort of ethnographic field is essentially an online space. So for you approaching it and looking at things in a purely digital form, how do you think that differs compared to working, say, in a physical format in real life as opposed to online? <laughs> if we're going to go down the binary path. I guess it's about accessibility and knowing where to find the community in online spaces and then knowing how to access it. And also the volume 
of research subjects. Like I use Twitter as my research site because Twitter is the red light district of the internet. That's, you know, and <laughs> selfie self sex, that's a, that's a reality. That's what my research is based on. So it's about, I think the difference is being able to find communities relatively more easy and the volume of data that you can analyse. You've got this thing called social media content analysis where you can analyse threads, look for pattern in linguistics, but also just access the sheer amount of photographs online as one massive database that's just ripe for, you know, academic critique, which presents other ethical issues about whether you should do that or not. So I guess the main difference is... It's a really interesting question is the ability to access spaces and communities, either as an insider or as an outsider, that you wouldn't have been able to do before. And in doing that, it challenges our stereotypical ways of the way that we study marginalised populations. For instance, with my research, I'm refusing to photograph sex workers. I don't need to photograph sex workers. I just need to go online spaces, find the photographs that they create themselves and do a stylistic, you know, analysis, you know, uh, an in-depth analysis of what what, what does this mean and look for patterns in photographic behaviour, look for patterns in the language that they use to describe their photographic practice. Whereas prior to the internet, I mean, it's still, people will do things like, you know, participatory, Oh, I can't say it, <laughs> photo voice projects, you know, where they go out and photograph a marginalised community or get the marginalised community to look at a photograph and then they'll interpret their interpretations of that photograph. So it's allowed, I guess it's allowed you to analyse visual data that has already been created, not for research purposes, to create new understandings for research purposes. So it's the mm. accessibility and it's the volume which does present so many other ethical issues because to me, when I go onto the internet, I view the internet as just this massive visual database right for the analysis and I don't have to ask permission from anyone to use the photographs because, you know, I have there's provisions in copyright acts that allow me as a researcher to use, take and analyse photographs for research purposes, which presents other ethical issues and it allows me to just see when you look at great you know I've looked at over 20,000 sex work images when you look at grand scales of images online you start seeing beautiful rhythmic patterns that connect them that we can then draw you know conclusions from those about people's behavior in online spaces don't forget the internet is like a town square like you're pretty much like proclaiming absolutely anything any any belief any thought anything that you upload is like pasting it up in the town square for everyone to look at you know but yeah you're right it does raise a lot of ethical issues even if it is technically allowed under like fair use copyright yeah, it does. But also, like, you've got the, it comes back to the old saying, whoever controls the image controls the message. Mm. But because we're bombarded mm. with so many images, whose message do we listen to? And I have no problem with freedom of expression in terms of, you know, what people put out there. I have a problem with censorship and whose photographs are allowed in online spaces. Like the problem with sex workers at the moment, they're being disappeared from the internet at such an alarming rate the sheer volume of their photographs that are being censored. So in 100 years' time, when people like you and I are looking at the visual landscape of sex work, they're only going to see one, you know, state version of sex work because, you know, 
American legislation says and fostered do not want them in online spaces. So it presents a real mm. problem about who gets to occupy social media spaces in the visual sense, whose photographs are permissible and why, and what are the consequences if we start silencing people's visual expression. And also, like, I find this, I mean, I find the pandemic really interesting for two reasons. One, because it's massively shifted everyone's visual culture. If you look at TV shows on the BBC now, they're filmed from the perspective of Zoom. People are photographing differently. It's an amazing, I mean, really sorry the pandemic swept into town, but this is a bloody awesome time to be in visual anthropology or visual sociology because the online culture has massively shifted and it's shifted overnight. And the fabulous thing about online being a research area is that it's just evolving right in front of you. And also, who gets the right to say what they want on social media? I mean, I get that there's anti-vaxxers, you know. I don't care what people do with their body. It's bodily autonomy. But does that bodily autonomy extend to photographic representations online? And if I'm arguing, well, it's wrong for sex workers to be censored, should I be arguing that Jimmy down the road, he's an absolute idiot with his anti-vaxxer routines? Should he be not allowed to post photographs online? I think the intention of these social media platforms was good in terms of wanting to connect any everyone the ramifications have been dire because it comes back to that old terrible question that all people actually if you do study any photographic theory someone should ask you this question at some point in time what is a photograph and we need to reevaluate that question for now what is a photograph post the disconnected world because politics has become an aesthetic so what does it mean when you post those photographs? And the meaning changes what the photograph is. So these are all questions that I'm not going to answer because I don't have the answer to them <laughs> that we should answer. And do you know who, whose visual representation is allowed in online spaces? And if you argue, well, it's for the betterment of society if we don't have people, anti-vax people, putting their content online, their visual content, that sliding is very... And I don't see, actually, I don't see Instagram and Twitter as social media companies. I just see them as, you know, they're just an extension of the state enforcing state legislation, enforcing people's moral, political, ethical views about other people's bodies. For instance, the banning of the, the female nip. Well, you know what? I don't want to go in on Instagram and see a male nipple, but it's there. Um, <laughs> there's really, I mean, it's like, I, I can I feel con- that. Yeah, I can connect this to Australia. I think there were two women who breached anti-lockdown rules in Australia and travelled from Victoria to Queensland. And yep. the internet or the in- men on Google, whatever, they decided to track these women down and they falsely identified one of the women as a sex worker and they blasted this woman's sex worker photographs all over the internet saying, look at these travelling scumbags. That is an example of the weaponization of photography. Do you know, a lot of my research is around expanding definitions of lens-based violence, right? Mm. So you've got revenge porn, right? Revenge porn based on the sharing of private images. Well, what the hell is a private image these days? So therefore the legislation needs to be changed from sharing of private images to who was the intended audience. For sex workers, for instance, the sharing of a face photograph and outing someone as sex work is just as diabolical as releasing sexualised images of people. 
and the legislation around and this is where a lot of my research is heading towards so you know I've, one of the I was one of the recommendations in the home office recommendations for violence against women and girls is to look at what is the definition of the weaponization of photography in online space so specifically what is lens-based abuses right so these people in Queensland who release these women's photographs call them whores online example of the weaponization of photography Instagram censoring women's nipples it's an example but it's a broad spectrum of behavior but because there's such a massive gap, in, if anyone wants to go into a PhD in the future, and I highly encourage you to do, there's such a massive gap in photographic theory around the self-image in online spaces. We haven't seemed to progress the past. Uh, is the selfie vacuous or not? <laughs> um, but also, like, I want the definition of what is a photograph changed because if we're taking photographs for likes, the content on the photo becomes irrelevant. It becomes the sharing. And if we're going to rage about these photographs, they get buried so deep in other photographs. Are they then relevant? Well, that, that's that's right because, like, Bourdieu kind of, like, talks about, like, the holiday snap and how the holiday snap is relevant because of the relationship the photographer has to not only the subject of the photograph but also, like, the background. Like, he, I think he uses the example of, like, the Eiffel Tower. And that symbol as well as that person and those relationships going on, that's what gives the image context and meaning. But then all of a sudden when you either, one, remove the photographer entirely because AI, which is something I'm personally looking into at the moment, or you then share the image on social media you kind of then change this whole dynamic of getting people to sit down and watch your slideshows. I do love you because you calls out the middle classes and the upper middle upper classes. And, I mean, his language is a bit questionable in the book, calling the working classes peasants. But he talks about, yeah, you're right, he talks about photography being the domain of the middle class masses and it's used to document certain, you know, social climbing statuses like getting married, travel, whereas the working classes didn't need to photograph because they were too busy, you know, just trying to eat, not have to document it. But he kind of becomes interesting when you see what happened in the 1990s where mass communication and digital photography took photography out of the hands of the middle class masses and whacked it in the hands, especially the phone technology, whacked it in the hands mm. of the everyday person who then can control the image. You know, and Katrina Salas, she talks about the digitally networked image. What does that mean? But there's a, there's a lot of research that needs to be done definitely around. I mean, there's people who writing about what does that mean. But I think, I think, you know, we have to look at COVID photography, the pandemic photography, not as a new genre of photography, but as a new era of photography. I think since 2018, and I say that specifically because that's when the internet started to get censored by America in terms of their anti-trafficking legislation that, you know, basically said we don't want any trafficking in online spaces, and that includes women sex workers. So from 2018 and in the pandemic when we're just chucking out thousands of thousands of photos a day, millions, billions of photographs a day. What does the photograph mean when it has such a vast audience? And do people take photographs anymore and not share them? And why do they share them? Well, and there was a really interesting one a couple of years ago where this woman took an incredibly intimate photograph of her husband in the shower holding their baby and he was trying to get the kid's temperature down because he had a really high fever. 
And she circulated that going, oh, look at my husband. Oh, and they're like, oh, it's a great example of masculinity. Look at him, you know, good father. And I'm like, well, why do you need to share that? You know, so the photograph has turned from something what um, he was saying in that book, Photography of Millborough Art, to something we use to signify things we've done within our little communities and within our families, like what is a wedding album? Well, that's not about love. That's to document that you went through this certain process and you've achieved a certain status. But what does it mean now that we're putting all those photographs online? And if you look at wedding photography, for instance, it's no longer just wedding photography. You've got the engagement photography, which then is shared online to prove that you've been engaged. You've got the wedding photos. And on average, couples share their wedding photographs online up until five years after they've married. What the hell is that about? Then you've got, you know, trash the dress wedding photography. You've got boudoir bride photography, all coinciding at the same time that you can have mass audiences to your photographs. And what happened probably about 10 years ago, brides were saying, I really want my photographs, weddings featured in a wedding magazine on a wedding blog, because suddenly the audience to personal photos just exploded. So when I'm taking a personal photograph in a personal context, is it really personal because then I'm going to share it? And if you look at selfies, for instance, mm. people love to use the hashtag unfiltered selfie. Yeah, no, nah, that's not unfiltered, my friend. You'll probably pose 30 or 40 times before you found the right one. And it's just, just really interesting question because is photography private anymore? And if it's not private, can you then argue for privacy in online spaces? Megan Markle, in that disastrous interview the other day, she said something bang on about the consumption of images. She feels like there's this never-ending desire for people to consume the photographs of others, which is all about what photography is really about, is about, you know, perversion perversion and voyeurism and spectacle, um, the way we judge ourselves compared to other people. I find that comment interesting because that's exactly the way I felt when I realised my rapist had been looking at my timeline, I felt visually consumed and I felt really incredibly violated by it. And when is enough? You know, why do we have to post photographs online? And when is enough? And what responsibility do we have about those photographs? It's a very, like, passive consumption almost. But at the same time, I think it's kind of very active in our brains. It's actually doing a lot more to us than we actually realise because we just write it off as passive because we're so accustomed to seeing photographs everywhere, literally now, literally everywhere. I don't think I'm incorrect to say that we've never been bombarded with more images in our life. And the problem with the pandemic is that it's all so much screen time and everyone's on social media so much. I mean, even me, I mean, my research is about online visual cultures. I spend my days online. I have found the attention so the bombarding with images, all that Magnum stuff, my sex offender just popping up to trip down sex offender memory lane, I have found it so much that even now I've had to quit social media, which is funny because my research is on social media. Um, I just, I, I guess, I guess people do things online in terms of photography. It's photography, it's what we do. We photograph weddings a certain way because it's a wedding. I'm a boudoir photographer, I photograph that way for instance. Oh, Instagram, you share your photographs. That's what people do. But why? It comes down to the why. And you see, you know, families with beautifully, carefully constructed photo albums on public Instagram feeds. Well, why do you need your to brand your family 
in such a public setting because it's about the photo is a way for us to compare ourselves to others so we have a way to measure our own life but there's really complex harsh consequences to that and for me for instance i i've never posted any nudity online i rarely post photographs and i get bombarded for photographs because they don't understand well how come she's a photographer and how come she researches photography but how come she doesn't post photos online because i research <laughs> photography and because i see the negativity you know and it just feels like and because i remember you know the disconnected world i remember what the internet was like when you used to go home and have to plug it in dial up but it wasn't a destination i don't when I take photographs, I don't take them with the purpose of sharing because it's still a photograph. I don't need people to share, see my photographs for me to know. So somehow the photograph, we've turned it into a validation of ourselves. And which is why I say there's no, you know, we, we are post offline, we are post disconnected because you tell me how your life is offline when you're posting so many photos online, when we're constantly connected. I guess so, obviously, like, one of the things that a lot of photographers talk about is that sometimes what makes a photograph great is actually what is not in the photograph itself and what is deliberately left out. And I'm assuming that you've kind of come across a lot of, I'll use the word data, while you're looking um, and researching online in terms of your research that, that would definitely kind of come under that umbrella of the fact that, like, things are left out on purpose, why are they left out, what, like, does it add an artistic value or a personal value or a protection, like, security value if it's a face, I guess? Yeah, but also, like, a photograph is edited before you take it, right? Mm. You see it in your mind. Images, the word image comes from what forms in our head. What forms is that in our head is preconceived by our understanding of the subject that we're photographing, which ironically comes from our visual cultural points about what we think we know about the person already photographed. And for instance, if you put the words whore, prostitute, sex worker into Google Images, three different images come up, but it all represents the same thing. So whether, so yeah, people do deliver and leave stuff out and what is left out does say something about the photos, but people only photograph by what? their upbringing, their class, their experience of race, gender, sex, you know, whether you're Western, do you know, it becomes a whole nother gamut of, well, well, maybe there's this Western male gaze that is dominating the visual landscape. So when photographers come along, oh, I'm gonna, this is the way we photograph. Yeah, because you've been influenced by a 200 photographic year history dominated by the male Western gaze. Yep. That's not how we photograph anymore. Yep. It's a really, but people, it's real, it's a real touchy subject because, you know, to say photojournalism and photography is racist or is colonialist, people get really offended by that because they take it personally and it's not personal. It's a critique of the practice and the history of where our visual landscape is at today, which is why the magnum photographic scandal is so problematic because they don't see a problem of a male Western white photographer travelling to uh, an impoverished country and photographing, you know, child sexual abuse victims and label it in as child labour, you know, you know, child sex worker, child prostitute. It's just breathtakingly arrogant. But the, the shocking thing about these photographs is that it unveiled all the problems inherent in the editing of photographs that happen before you even take it, like your understanding of the subject, that you think it's okay that some people, mm. you know, you think it's okay that mm. some children, it's okay to photograph some children 
you've been sexually violated and then profit from those, my God, because you wouldn't, you don't see that happening to little Western white girls in, you know, in the streets of Baddison, for instance. So I do get what you're saying about it's what they leave out, but it's also what they leave out unintentionally, but it's also what they do deliberately. Mm. Like there was a Spanish photographer who stalked street-based sex workers for six years, concealed his identity as a street surveyor because prostitutes don't like to be photographed. He photographed them, turned them into the book. And Martin Parr, for the love of God, praised him for his cunning deception of prostitutes. Because you know why? Because we've relegated the prostitute to image sitter. She's not an image maker. So because she's therefore up for public consumption and there's so many, there's a 200-year history of sex workers in film, cinema, art, media being just shown as these pitiful, hostile, sad creatures. The British Journal of Photography awarded a guy who essentially stalked vulnerable women for six years and said it was an amazing simply because of these women were prostitutes. So I guess the question about, you know, what's not seen in a photograph is so complex because it takes in your experience as a person, you know, your race, your class, you know, your background, your wealth. It's just so complex and you can't unpick. It intersects, you know, photographic theory intersects through everything social studies like, and, you know, Foucault talking about visibility being a trap. Well, yeah, and he wrote that when they didn't bloody have Instagram. Visibility, intersectionality, race, class, gender, um, it all merges into places like Instagram. And Instagram likes to call itself a community, but it's not a community. It's a little gated white community where certain visual representations are permitted. But when people say there's no malice to their photographs or photojournalists say I'm a photojournalist I was just photographing what I saw your camera didn't see that you saw that because your preconceived ideas about the paper that you're photographing Mm. so that question about what's left Mm. out well then becomes well what is left out so we've talked a little bit about giving the power back to people and individual communities because now people do have that power and they can take photographs and represent themselves in the way that they want, but they're still kind of surveillanced and I guess prohibited in many aspects by social media and, a, and by these like online institutions that still come under most of the time US kind of laws and rules. Yeah, well, there's two things I get out of that is we need to give them space to not only take the photographs but to be visually seen, whether it's in galleries, whether it's in newspapers, magazines. You know, we need to stop this white Western photographer narrative going over to Africa, photographing and coming back. So but also the thing about the surveillance thing is I wrote something in my thesis that my supervisors didn't agree with. I said the American is the internet is American. And it is in the sense that the internet is policed by a moralistic set of rules that are controlled by America. How do you then challenge that? Because good intentions are well. They say it's good intentions. We don't want any bad stuff on the internet. But the problem when they say we don't want any bad stuff on the internet is that it targets marginalised people on purpose. So you get a social, ethnic, moral cleansing on the internet. So not only do you have to allow people the space in physical spaces like in magazines, in, you know, 
just you know if you look at the underrepresentation of women in photographic spaces it's, it's just appalling it's shocking and it's even worse when you consider you know women of color so you have to give them the space but you also have to then go well hang on why are social media companies why are we permitting them to censor photographs simply because it doesn't meet their algorithms because these coded algorithms are based on patriarchy in the algorithms are coded based on a set of government legislation that says certain type of people are allowed to express themselves visually online i don't see people pushing back on that why because only marginalized people are targeted if everyone was targeted then i think we'd have more of a problem and the female nipple thing why i find that so interesting is the ban on women's nipples on instagram comes from sester and foster sester and foster says doesn't make any difference between a trafficked victim or, you know, uh, a consensual sex worker. But it basically says, it repealed a section of the Safe Harbour Act in America, and it basically says, if you're a website and you host something we think is trafficking, we're going to charge you with trafficking. So Instagram's response was to just get rid of all female nudity. Well, hang on, all female nudity isn't about sex, and just because I show my nip doesn't mean I'm trafficked. It yeah. becomes so then it controls, yeah. then it it controls the way the aesthetic of the image. But then they went one step further. They then subsequently banned the blocking on nudity. So if I was to cover my nipple with an emoji or cover my ass with a peach, now that is a violation of. So therefore, you you are they are banning entire genres of photography under the guise of. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're protecting women for trafficking. But, you know, people critique my research because they can't, they think women's sex work is existing online spaces for images made by, for the consumption of men. So they're just simply marketing the images made to attract male buyers of sex. But they're more complex than that, which is the problem that I have with Instagram is that they just ban women's nudity because it's equated to sex and dirtiness. None of these social media companies have the balls to challenge legislators because they think it's just a photograph and it doesn't matter and what does it mean? It means a lot because in 100 years, if I'm still kicking about, if I'm looking at these photos, I'm only going to see a certain version of society that is being predetermined by the state, which comes back to what you just said about where how do you allow others to represent the space? You give them the space and you stop governments policing the internet. You know, I get the argument that is very much comes from the 1970s war on sex that porn and prostitution should be a destination, not a part of the internet. My argument against that is, well, you tell me what porn is these days because it doesn't meet the original definition of what Sontag came up mm. with because porn can now mean mm. different things. And what? why in photography do we still consider the nude? As pornographic. As just... As a figure who, as just as a figure who appears for the sexual consumption of men. Well, that might be all that we have time for this week. Thank you so much, Camille, for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Where can the listeners go to find more about your work? You can find me on Twitter at PhD Photographer, or you can go to my website, thephotographictheorist.com. Well, thank you so much again, and we will leave all of the sources and details that we we got into the nitty gritty today in the show notes. So make sure you check those out if you found anything that you found very interesting during this podcast. See you next time.